From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fentanyl's rapid rise means doctors must relearn how to treat drug users. It's a much different disease that we're seeing. There's a lot more overdose. There's a lot more complicated withdrawal. Meet Coloradans on the front lines of overdose prevention. Plus, a tool that means anyone can help. If you walk on Earth or in Denver, we need you carrying it today. Later, a world-class chef in Aurora shares a chicken recipe and memories. It was one of the very first dishes that I remember my mom making and really loving. Caroline Glover owns Annette and just won a James Beard Award. And CU's athletic director isn't making any rash moves when it comes to the Pac-12. When something changes, we'll react to it, but we're not going to react to rumors or innuendos that are out there. Hi, I'm Sonny Hutchison, and my wife Mariana and I are CPR leadership partners. In a media landscape filled with what I think is narrow casting, catering to one point of view or political persuasion, CPR is still truly broadcasting, committed to expanding coverage across the state, providing stories that cover the spectrum of political, economic, and community issues, voices from all corners of Colorado. I urge you, if you can, to make that philanthropic donation at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Fentanyl deaths in Colorado are 10 times higher than they were even a few years ago, which is why some people carry Narcan to reverse overdoses. Test strips are also more common to see if other drugs like cocaine and ecstasy are laced with fentanyl. In this first part of the show, we're going to get a better grasp on exactly what's happening. And we'll start with CPR health reporter John Daly. Under a vintage clear Colorado sky, fans gather a couple of hours before a Red Rocks concert. The tunes are cranked up. The mood is festive in the mostly 20-something aged crowd. Steve Saren is in a baseball cap with a short beard. He carries some small packages. We are going to walk around the parking lots and ask people if they'd like us to check their stash. Saren is with Aspen Ridge Recovery, a drug and alcohol treatment center. He points out this effort is not connected to the promoter or the city which runs the facility. They're just volunteers. His colleague, Katie Hale, has long dark hair and a tattoo on her arm. She says this show is electronic dance music. And at electronic dance music concerts, there tends to be a lot of different types of drugs, you know, ecstasy, molly, ketamine, amphetamines. Hale and Saren approach one group of guys and explain what they're doing. The group doesn't want to be on the radio. One says his mom listens to CPR all the time. They decline to have any drugs tested, but do take some free drug overdose kits. I am gonna give you guys some uh, Narcan if you guys want it, just in case. Yeah, appreciate some that. Narcan take some Narcan and some fentanyl test strips. The next group, again, so mostly guys, takes the pair up on the drug test offer. In this case, to check out a pill, a psychoactive, mostly recreational drug called MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly. So he's taking a little bit of molly, we're putting it into a bottle cap and we're adding few milliliters of water. It works like a COVID or pregnancy test, and soon a dark line appears on the strip. We got a positive hit on that, on the fentanyl. The result causes a stir in the group. 
One of them says he won't be taking those drugs anymore. A couple of others back out of doing an interview. Another agrees to talk. So this test came back positive. What did you think of that? I was, I was very, very surprised. I was, I was. And Chris I, tells me he's from back east. He seems rattled. He knew someone a little older than him who accidentally overdosed from fentanyl. The people that are selling it are just trying to make money and they don't care what happens to other people. And that's the truth. Last year, illegal fentanyl killed more than 700 people in Colorado. Back at the Red Rocks show, some concert goers say Coloradans are just starting to understand the risks of drugs laced with fentanyl. Joe, who's in his mid-20s, applauds efforts to educate. He's heard about overdoses at recent concerts. Super scary, man, super scary. But it's like, you know, if you are gonna do the substance, which like, yo, sometimes like, you know, we do party, you know what I mean? But dude, uh, like honestly, man, like these people, you guys are saving lives. He hopes broader awareness will help reverse the trend in a state where fentanyl deaths are rising faster than every other state but one. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Well, now let's hear from three people who contend with the reality of overdoses. Lisa Rayville is with the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. They do things like hand out clean needles and distribute the nasal spray Narcan. Dr. Don Stater is an emergency and addiction medicine physician in Metro Denver. And Kyle Peters is director of operations for Sexy Pizza, a Denver restaurant chain that's trying to do its part. They all spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. Let's talk about this drug, fentanyl, that's killing so many people. Uh, Dr. Don Stater, you work in the ER. You've seen your share of people addicted to opioids. How powerful is it compared to other opioids, drugs like OxyContin, and also compared to, say, heroin? It's probably the most powerful opioid that we have in medicine. Um, we know that it's around 50 times more powerful than heroin. It's 100 times more powerful than something like morphine. So it's extremely, extremely potent. And did you witness the transition from other opioids to fentanyl in the ER? Yes, for sure. We used to see a lot of people who struggle with opioid use disorders of all types. But it has become a very, very real transition that we've seen over the past several years from people who are primarily using black tar heroin to now people who are using fentanyl uh, almost exclusively. And it's a much different um, disease that we're seeing. You know, there's a lot more overdose. There's a lot more complicated withdrawal. And it has made medical treatment much more difficult for patients who sometimes come to us asking for help in getting into recovery. Some people are using fentanyl knowingly. Others are using different substances. Those could be laced with fentanyl without a user knowing. Can you explain the difference? Yeah. So sometimes if someone is addicted to, let's say, opioids, they will go out and seek opioids, which right now in our market is mostly fentanyl. But then other times, people who have no intention of using an opioid, who are using something like ecstasy or cocaine or methamphetamine, will buy a product that's been sold to them as one of those things and then use it and find that it actually is either laced with fentanyl, which some of which is contamination, or is erroneously sold as something else and is in fact fentanyl. So right now we have an extremely, extremely dangerous, unstable, and unreliable drug supply where a lot of people with no intention of using fentanyl are getting into fentanyl and accidentally overdosing. Lisa Rayville, how did the shift happen from uh, drugs like heroin to fentanyl? 
Heroin's almost gone due to climate change and lack of poppy cultivation. Um, and then we are also seeing in uh, people wanting to take pills such as Oxy and Xanax. We no longer have a safe supply of pills, so they are going to the street getting the same unpredictable drug supply as everybody else. And when you say we don't have a safe supply of pills, you mean that it's hard for people to get prescription pills now? Correct. It's hard to get prescription opioids in particular. We mentioned, Lisa, the huge spike in the number of people overdosing. The medicine Narcan can prevent overdose deaths. And how can you tell someone's overdosing? Sure. It's a deep snoring or gurgling. It's called the death rattle. They say if you've ever heard it, you'll never forget it. Very infrequent or no breathing, the pale or clammy skin, the heavy nod, not responsive to stimulation, and a blue or gray skin tinge of the lips or fingertips, depending on skin color, because an opioid overdose is lack of oxygen. And I understand you've had to revive someone. Is it fairly straightforward or do you have to really know what you're doing? Well, you can't hurt anybody. If they don't have opioids in their system, it won't do anything to them. Uh, You want to rescue breathe and get that Narcan up the nostril. Rescue breathe once every seven seconds for three minutes. And if you need to use the other dose, go ahead and do that and continue rescue breathing until they wake up or paramedics arrive. And what is rescue breathing? What does that look like? Sure. It's laying somebody out on their back, putting your hand underneath their neck, closing their nose and doing breath uh, mouth to mouth. Dr. Stater, have you used Narcan? Do doctors in the ER have to use it? Yeah, we use actually different formulations. Oftentimes we use the injectable naloxone. But to circle back, is for your listeners, I want them to know, it's extremely, extremely easy to use Narcan. And everyone should carry it if you're around people who have the potential of experiencing an overdose. As long as you can recognize a nose and you have an opposable thumb, Really, I could teach you how to use Narcan in literally two seconds. It's that easy. So it is something that's very, very user-friendly. And as Lisa mentioned, she did a wonderful job discussing rescue breathing, which I think some listeners might listen to and say, wow, I don't want to rescue breathe for a stranger or someone I might encounter on the street who has overdosed. But if all you do is give naloxone, you oftentimes will save a life. So I want to say emphasize how easy it is and how life-saving it can be if you have it at the right time and at the right moment. How common is it these days for the general population to carry Narcan? It's incredibly common. Um, 204 law enforcement departments in the state carry Narcan. Six county jails get it out in the hands of people who use drugs. People who use drugs are the true first responders in this overdose crisis. Third parties have been able to carry Narcan in the state of Colorado since 2013. If you walk on Earth or in Denver, we need you carrying it today. Kyle, you head up operations for Sexy Pizza. Um, It's a restaurant business in Denver. When did you decide workers should carry Narcan with them? Well, really, it was at the uh, advisement of Harm Reduction Action Center and Lisa and her team that uh, when they brought the the idea to us or the, the opportunity to get trained um, and, and have Narcan in our restaurants, um, it was kind of a no-brainer. We've actually experienced an overdose at our Capitol Hill location. It's been you know quite a few years now, but um, that made me think of it, and I thought it was extremely important. Did you know what was happening then? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't have the training. My delivery driver at the time, who's now advanced to our, one of our general managers, he's the one that found the person overdosing in our bathroom. So since we didn't know what was really going on, we hadn't had the training. One of my fellow team members had dialed the non-emergency line. Luckily, the dispatcher on the other end recognized that it was an emergency, and they dispatched the paramedics appropriately. The paramedics showed up in time. They obviously had Narcan on them, and then 
uh, was able to revive and, and help this person out. And so, Lisa, are you going around to businesses and, you know, suggesting that you train them with Narcan? Absolutely. When people are unhoused, they use outside in alleys, in parks, and in business bathrooms. They prioritize business bathrooms first for three reasons. One is you can close the door and the cops don't come up on you like they can in an alley. Two is so the larger community and kids don't see them. And three is so they can have access to sterile water. So since we've been trying to push forward with overdose prevention sites, we know that folks are using there. So we want to make sure that baristas, who are really one of the true first responders, along with folks at Sexy Pizza, know how to recognize and respond because it can be so scary. And Kyle, do you have them sort of stored in a cabinet at your restaurants? We do. The people at Harm Reduction Action Center have been uh, um, providing us with the necessary Narcan spray. We keep it in our first aid cabinet, the same place we'd go to access any other bandage or, you know, ibuprofen or whatever uh, for, you know, customers and employees. Do you feel pretty confident that if you had to, you could revive someone? Uh, I mean, I think so. Uh, Luckily, I've never had to do it. All you need is uh, identify a nose and have an opposable thumb, as doctor said earlier. So it's it's that simple. Now, the additional training to recognize what's going on, I think, is the extremely important part, because once you know what's going on, then you can act appropriately. Do you watch out for folks that come into your restaurants um, to see if they may have been using and that you should be on alert? Um, I wouldn't say it's an alert. It's more just to know if it's happening, what to do in the event that it does happen on site, you know, at the neighbor's place, wherever it may be, somewhere not even on our property, but just to be able to recognize what's going on. Let's talk about another way to prevent someone from overdosing. This one starts before a person takes a drug. We just heard about test strips in the last story. Uh, Don, how do they work? Yeah, so test strips are work by by detecting fentanyl. By and there's a reagent. We don't need to get into the chemistry, but that reagent reacts. It turns a different color, just like a pregnancy test, which most people are, are familiar with, or a COVID test. And when it turns that positive color, you know that this compound has some fentanyl in it. The difficulty is you don't know how much. So it's a binary test. It's either positive or it's negative, but it doesn't give you that nuance of this is mostly fentanyl, this only has a small coating of fentanyl on it, et cetera. But it is an extremely useful test for some people who don't want to use fentanyl, but then find that a pill has fentanyl in it. It can really identify that this is potentially a risky uh, pill uh, or a drug that they should possibly not use or have other interventions that are by in case they do have an accidental overdose. Now, in the case of a pill, Lisa, you have to dissolve it in water. So doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose of the pill and having perhaps purchased the pill? Right. You can't use it. Well, you have the, might have the chocolate chip effects. So you can't just take it off the side of the pill and keep the pill in its original form. Um, you would have to crush it and use the residue in with water. However, some folks will want to know if there's fentanyl in those pills, and some folks will be seeking fentanyl in those pills. For example, my folks smoke those blue pills. They smoke between 5 and 20 per day. They're assuming fentanyl's in there. The problem is, is you don't know if it's a little fentanyl, a lot of fentanyl, or no fentanyl in those pills. And are those folks testing with the test strips? Uh, not necessarily. If you're using on the streets and you're an opioid user and fentanyl's been here since 2018 and you know that they're in the blues, you're seeking out the blues, uh, those fentanyl pills, because you can't access heroin anymore. Opioid users never want to be in withdrawal. It's physically painful. The flu time's a thousand. I think where we need to start having conversations is with folks who are trying to purchase Oxys and Xanax and maybe haven't seen them come out of the original pill bottle and talk to them about using those fentanyl testing strips with middle schoolers and high schoolers, and especially pills. Years 
years ago, people were taking pills and it was a safe supply. And so everybody was fine with that. Now, with this unpredictable drug supply, we need to be having larger conversations, especially about taking pills. And Lisa, you've also talked about the next wave of drugs that may be headed to Colorado. They're ones you're very concerned about. Talk about them. Uh, so we're talking about fentanyl now. We, now. we should be talking about xylazine, which is a veterinary tranquilizer. I got an alert yesterday talking about uh, pyro, so niatazine. We have to be very nimble. The drug trade is shifting very quickly, and we need to be shifting with that. Right now, we have heroin's gone, fentanyl's here. Fentanyl's going to be gone pretty soon. What is that going to bring us? Especially with xylazine, we're nervous. That's a veterinary tranquilizer. Naloxone and Narcan won't work on that. So far, we've been talking a lot about preventing overdoses. What about ways to prevent people from buying and using drugs in the first place? So I do think that there's education, as Lisa mentions, that has to happen at the youngest levels of society, right? And then in terms of like the prevention of buying and using drugs, so I do think that we have to accept as a culture that some drug experimentation will happen. That's been since the BC area to today, people have liked using psychoactive drugs. And most people do, whether you're talking about caffeine, whether you're talking about alcohol, or whether you're talking about fentanyl. So the question that's more germane is how do we make sure that we make use as safe as possible and provide an educated population where we can minimize those risks to as low as possible? Um, of course, all of us wish. If I could wave a wand and wish that no one used substances in a harmful way, I would. But what I've seen in the emergency department and our experience just as being human beings is people are going to continue to use substances. And the challenge that all of us have in a medical system as a society as harm reductionist is trying to figure out how to make usage as safe as possible. So we know we have an unpredictable drug supply. We know that the, we've had the war on drugs for the last 51 years. We know incarceration and criminalization has never worked with drug use. So we need to be having really good conversations about what a safe supply looks like and talking about how to prevent overdoses. Of course, some people would disagree about criminalization and how the laws have changed and how that's affected drugs. And Don, you were going to hop in here. Yeah, And I think that one is we definitely see fluctuations in society of when people use more substances and less substances. And right now we're in a period of very, very heavy substance use, no matter what, whether you're talking about alcohol, cigarettes, et cetera, because I think there's so much stress, so much grieving, so much financial insecurity. So when you find oftentimes drug use or substance use get really problematic is when people are using it to cope with oftentimes those things, those very human emotions of stress, of depression, of anxiety. And right now we're in a period of time where those are rampant. People are worried about the world. People are worried about their economic well-being. People see, see the war in Ukraine and it affects their psychology. And because of that, across the field, we've seen substance use increase. So really, to your question is, do I think that we'll ever have no substance use? No. Do I think that if the world improves and we become more connected and people feel less anxious about the world, will substance use naturally decrease? The answer to that is yes. And we can all hope for and aspire to a future where it is so. Kyle, how do you talk to other businesses that may not be as versed in using Narcan and who you think probably should have it on hand too? 
<laughs> I learned a ton today. Um, what I would suggest first and foremost is go out there and ask the questions um, and speak to my own story of not knowing what was going on, having it happen, and being extremely lucky with the outcome because it could have gone a vastly different way. And if so, that could have changed the course for sexy pizza, you know, from kind of the beginning. So I think it's important at that level. Do you guys carry it with you in your cars when you're walking around? I do. I carry it in my car. And actually, I you know, I don't carry it in my pocket all the time. But when I do decide, let's say I go to a Red Rocks concert, I actually put naloxone in my pocket because I, I think they'll, if there is someone who's using drugs and there's an, a need for it, I'll actually have it. So I am a very big carrier of naloxone. And I imagine, Lisa, you carry it with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I have it with me right in my bag today. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Lisa Rayville is with the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. Dr. Don Stater is an emergency and addiction medicine physician in Metro Denver. And Kyle Peters is director of operations for Sexy Pizza, whose employees carry Narcan to help reverse overdoses. The three spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about fentanyl use. Be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Please join Colorado Public Radio at the Colorado Dragon Boat Festival. Races, performances, and food. Saturday from 10 to 7 and Sunday from 10 to 5 at Sloan's Lake Park. Hope to see you there. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The University of Colorado is part of the Pac-12 conference, but soon the buffs could move to the Big 12 or the Big 10, or they might just stay put. Recent moves by UCLA and USC have disrupted college sports, leaving CU and its athletic director, Rick George, in the wake. You've got to be nimble and you've got to be able to move forward regardless of what happens out there. When something changes, we'll react to it, but we're not going to react to rumors or innuendos that are out there. We're going to react to the real life things that are going on. That's from a recent press conference, press conference that is, which CPR senior producer Anthony Cotton attended. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Ryan. Okay, so these moves are the latest in a trend that really has disrupted college athletics. What's behind the trend? Well, for UCLA and USC, it really comes down to money. One of the things that Rick George said last week was that the Pac-12 is undervalued in terms of the revenue it receives, mainly from national television contracts. Oh. In nineteen in twenty nineteen twenty, for example, each school in the league got about thirty three million dollars. That same year, each school in the Big Ten drew something closer to fifty four million dollars. Oh my goodness! Like a twenty million dollar difference. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but there's also a competitive aspect to this as well. Uh, the national championship in college football is arguably the biggest prize in collegiate sports, and the Pac twelve hasn't been a factor in that for a really long time. It hasn't had a team reach the playoffs since 2015. And meanwhile, the Big Ten has been represented in each of the last three years and in six of the eight years overall. Was the move by USC and UCLA unexpected? Very. Uh, it was just over a year ago that the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and the Atlantic Coast Conference got together to form what was called the Alliance. The idea was that schools in those conferences, I think it was like 43 altogether, huh. they would collaborate not only athletically, but academically as well. Uh, the collective was more informal than anything else, but it certainly is over now that 
the California schools have shifted leagues. And I asked Rick George about that, the end of the alliance, and whether he felt betrayed by USC and UCLA. I don't know that betrayal is the right word, but I would say that there's a there's a strong air of disappointment, you know, and it's really not in the the fact that they you know doing something that they feels best for them, um, but there's a way to do it the right way, you know, to communicate properly with the right people, and and again, those are things that other people will have to to live with. Now, there's a couple of things to point out here. One is that the athletic athletic director at USC is Mike Bone. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he was Rick George's predecessor at CU. Now, George says he hasn't talked with him or UCLA Athletic Director Martin Jarman since last month's announcement. The other thing is that the two schools' moves to the Big Ten won't take effect until about 2024. So there's likely going to be a lot of tension until then when the California schools play against the other Pac-12 schools. Well, speaking of tension, where does this leave the rest of the conference? Well, the thinking after USC and UCLA left was that there would be this mad free-for-all with all of the other Pac-12 schools scrambling to make deals with leagues like the Big 12. Mm -hmm. Colorado left the Big 12 about 11 years ago to join the Pac-12. But perhaps the most surprising thing that George said last week was that the other schools are committed to staying together. I mean, we trust the people in the room. We have to. And we talked through it. And when this initially happened, there was some concern. But, you know, again, I think always think that cooler heads prevail. And once we had an opportunity as a group to sit down and talk through where we were to make sure that we were aligned in, in where we wanted to go, I think it's been really helpful for us. I think there's strength in the 10. And uh, we'll build off of that strength as we move forward with our multimedia rights deal and with uh, where we go as a conference. Now, George mentioned media rights. Without Los Angeles, the second biggest market in the country, the Pac-12 wouldn't seem to be dealing from a position of strength. But George said this is an opportunity to, excuse me, an opportunity to be creative, perhaps bringing in entities that aren't in the marketplace currently. Think Amazon or Apple TV, which started streaming Major League Baseball this year. Ah, getting into the college football game. Exactly, and there's a lot of money there too. Now, all of this togetherness still could be as short-lived as the alliance was. George says he personally hasn't had conversations with the Big Ten or the Big 12, but he admits that CU and the other schools are probably looking up at alternatives should the landscape change. Well, I think there's some of that. I mean, certainly I have an obligation to uh, our student athletes, to our donor base, to our fans, to our university uh, as the athletic director. And, And certainly we understand the importance of what we're doing. But again, I think there's stronger and we're better when the 10 are together than we are individually. George says he also speaks with CU Chancellor Phil DiStefano on an almost daily basis. I mean, the mind boggles at all the Zoom meetings that have to be taking place. (laughs) I would point out that late last week, there was also talk about the Pac-12 and the Big 12 merging into one super conference. And that makes sense on a number of levels, but we'll just have to wait and see how it all plays out. Which means I'll see you again at that microphone. How exciting that is. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you. CPR senior producer Anthony Cotton. He recently spoke with CU Athletic Director Rick George about the school's conference future. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit with the girl who grew up on olives 
and became a chef. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR has current and future sponsorship opportunities for features like Colorado Postcards, The Music Room, and 303 Meetups. Find out how investing in Colorado Public Radio can benefit your business at CPR.org sponsorship. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's spend some time with a chef who's been named best in the Rocky Mountains. Caroline Glover has won a James Beard Award, often called the Oscars of Food. Her restaurant, Annette, is in Aurora in the ejector seat factory turned retail center known as Stanley Marketplace. When we walked in late morning, Annette wasn't opening for another five hours. And so I asked Chef Caroline Glover what it's like to be in her restaurant in the relative quiet. I was here last night. It was super full of people. The lights are dim. The mood is just right. And that's how I left. And then you come back and you kind of feel like the curtain's been pulled and it's kind of the stark light and you see everything a bit different. Um, But it's what I'm used to. This is my home and I come here every day. Do you spend more time here than your actual home, do you think? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, 100%. No hesitation No hesitation, no. Uh, So thank you for taking the time before, you know, dinner prep begins to make us something And what you've decided to make (laughs) us is called chicken marengo. Yes. Why this dish? Well, it was one of the very first dishes that I remember my mom making and really loving. I would assume I was a picky eater growing up, but... um, Why would you assume that? I mean, aren't most kids? I mean, my parents forced me to eat and try a lot of different things, which I think in the long run, that's why I'm here. But I asked for PB&J a lot. Um, But my family has a very strict rule. If you don't eat what my mom made, then you're not eating for the night. So this was one of my favorite dishes that she made and one of the first dishes I made with her. Chicken Marengo. And where did she get this recipe? Do you have any idea? So this one is um, from The Joy of Cooking. There are a ton of different iterations. Um, I was just Googling it. It used to, I think it came from like Napoleon. His cook made it for him. They won a battle and then it became a dish, but it had crawfish, eggs, like just kind of a kitchen sink type dish. <laughs> but I think the joy of cooking made it a little bit more approachable. Um, and what is in chicken marengo? So this specific variety um, it has chicken, tomatoes, black olives, which I don't think is traditional, but I'm a black olive fiend, so I put them in there. Wow, um, you and I are disagreeing on the black olives. <laughs> Did you like olives as a kid? Loved them. You Loved liked them. them even as a kid? Yes, I put them, you know, all 10 fingers and would wiggle, <laughs> wiggle my fingers around and eat them all. I love every type of olive. Like wow. if I could live off of them, you would. 100%. It sounds like you actually do, but okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so chicken marengo is a slimmed down version, perhaps, of the original. Yeah. And you still like it. Does it I bring you it. back when you eat it? Yes, and I think it's, it's a braised dish. So it's kind of something that you cook and put right in the oven, and that's the only way I really cook now. Um, it's easy. I can do other things. So it, it is, like, very, very applicable to my life. I think that'll resonate with a lot of people. Well, before we get to cooking, congratulations on the James Beard Award. Thank you. Do you feel like you've arrived? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of those people where it takes a very long time for things to sink in, and I don't let them. So I'm thinking, like, maybe next year I'll really feel it or something. But, you know, I feel like we're just still in the thick of it. The pandemic's been really rough. We're still going through it. 
you know, this is a beautiful thing that happened for the restaurant, but I just feel like we have a lot more to get through right now. I know the pandemic was really tough on you. You did adapt and ostensibly you stayed open. As we walked in, (laughs) we walked past these individual outdoor dining units, Mm -hmm. these kind of um, glassy greenhouse sheds. Yeah. 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 This was one adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. We did it, I mean, I guess two years ago now and we keep saying we're going to take them down. But then, you know, the next wave comes and our neighborhood has a lot of kids in it. And so as long as people aren't comfortable quite yet, then we'll, we'll keep, you know, accommodating. I also think there's something lovely about eating in your own clubhouse. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> I feel like when I go out to eat, I only want to sit at the bar. I want to look around. I want to talk to other people. So there, I understand that sentiment, but it's the exact opposite mm. of how I feel when I go out to eat. In the doldrums of the pandemic, how existential did it get for you in this restaurant, Annette? Um, it has taken years off my life, no doubt. It was the hardest thing we've ever done. And I was lucky enough that my husband and I, it's just the two of us, so we just poured our whole entire beings into this spot to make it work. Um, I'm guessing pouring your beings is also pouring your money. Everything. Everything. But, you know, we shut down for 24 hours and we reopened a new restaurant and um, we've just been doing it ever since. What do you mean? You shut down for 24 hours, you opened a new restaurant. Yeah. In other words, a totally new approach totally to your new. business. It was a totally to-go restaurant, which we've never done to-go food ever in the history of Annette. We put a burger on, we changed the whole entire menu, um, adapted to having my servers run out to cars, drop things off on people's hood of their cars. Like it just, People called for the orders. We had two people working phone lines. Like, it was insane. And now you've had to readapt to in-person dining. Yes. And kind of adapt to the in-between, right? Because some people aren't comfortable dining in. Some people are really comfortable. So trying to make sure that we get both groups of people in here Mm. has been really important. Are you still doing takeout? We are. You are? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do a small amount. Because I know when the fall hits, we want people to remember we can do takeout as well. I mentioned that the restaurant is called Annette. That's not your name. It's not. Whose name is Annette? It's my great aunt's name. Um, She passed right before we opened the restaurant, but I grew up in a very conservative Texas family. She was the one liberal that would come in, drink martinis, um, say whatever she wanted to say, watch Seinfeld every night, and I was just enamored with her. Um, She couldn't cook never cooked. Um, Didn't really eat much, but she just is a spirit that I wanted to embody in the restaurant. Now, did she learn that you would be naming your restaurant Annette before she passed? No, no. We didn't didn't get to that point. Um, Now, you mentioned her martinis. Mm -hmm. We're standing somewhere between the kitchen and the bar. Yes. Is there a martini on the menu here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's an Annette martini, and it's a beautiful navy strength gin martini. She drank hers extra dirty. But oh, she liked olives just like you. Loved, so this is where I got the love of olives. This I is ate her. her gin-soaked olives all the time. So I don't know if I like the olives or the booze more, but that's the connection. The, the, as a kid, as a you kid. ate the gin-soaked olives. Yes. All yes. right. It's a little late to call Child Protective Services. I know. She I always guess. would set them on a napkin, and I would, you know, just <laughs> nibble away. <laughs> What have you learned about yourself in the last two years? Um, I mean, I feel like it feels cliche, but 
We are an adaptive species. We're resilient. Um, I think that I learned that I can do way more than I thought I could. When it came to saving my restaurant and trying to save jobs, not only for my employees, but for vendors and purveyors. Because you thought about the connections oh, yeah. between your restaurant and all of the producers yeah. that make it possible and what their livelihoods were. And the only reason, I mean, not only reason, but right when the pandemic hit, we paid a really large invoice for one of our wine vendors. And he called me crying and said, I didn't expect to get any money the world is shutting down. This is going to help my family. And it just was like this crazy moment of like, oh my God, we have to keep going so other people can keep going. All right, time to get cooking. Again, Chef Caroline Glover of Annette in Aurora is making chicken moringa for us. The recipe is at CPR.org. And so, by the way, is the martini recipe. So... I start with chicken thighs. You can use chicken breasts, but I think chicken thighs braise a lot nicer. It's nice to have the bone so the meat comes off of it. You get a lot of flavor. I'm not gonna season these because we do brine our chickens overnight for 24 hours. And then we're gonna start with onions. I kind of feel like that's how you start a lot of things. In a separate pot, I like to get the browning of the chicken skin going. Um, that way you get a nice fond and a, good amount of flavor and a little bit of color. I noticed that you touch the bottom inside of the pan <laughs> with your bare fingers yes. as you move the onions around. I can't feel much heat anymore in my fingers. They're kind of numb. I don't know what it is. Um, my mom calls them asbestos hands. She's like, you can literally grab anything. But I just want to make sure this is like a, a nice thick bottomed pan. And so if you're making it home, you'll probably use like a, a Dutch oven or Lake Crusade pot that has a nice. So I wanted to make sure that it got hot enough before I added my onions in. And hot enough that even you could feel it. Yeah, exactly. Once I can feel it, then I know it's go time. <laughs> and then add tomatoes, a little bit of brandy, and bay leaves. Um, we use fresh bay leaves here. I just feel like the flavor is, it doesn't match dried bay leaves. So if you can find fresh bay leaves. Remind me, is it, can I smell a bay leaf? Yeah. I, I realize like, it's not immediately conjuring up a yeah. smell for Give me. Give it a little. Oh, so yeah. peppery. Yeah, so, it's so peppery. Great. Yeah, my mom picks these in Texas and then ships them to me in huge bags, and then we freeze them to last for the year. That's Texas bay leaf. Texas bay leaf. And then put the lid on. So this is where I love this dish. You get it in the oven and you have an hour to kind of get things done. Especially if you have people over. I hate cooking while everybody's standing around because everybody wants to help. And I don't want help ever in the kitchen. <laughs> Am I hearing a control freak? Oh God, just a little. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, I think all control freaks have to open their own thing because eventually you become the worst employee. So, <laughs> And then I, I saute the mushrooms separately. I kind of like to get a nice caramelization on them. And then at the very end, I add in black olives, whole black olives. Some people chop them up, but I want the whole briny olive whenever I'm tasting the dish. And while it's in the oven, um, I get rice going um, in a rice cooker. I cheat. I don't cook the rice on the stove. I just get it in the rice cooker um, and it'll be ready around the same amount of time. 
I think that many families would tell you that using a rice cooker is not cheating. I know. It's the smart <laughs> way to go. I feel like, you know, with the altitude, you just don't know what's going to happen. So rice cooker is the way I do it. <laughs> what emerges from the oven is a feast for the stomach and the eyes. Oh, look at that color. That is the most beautiful red. It's so good. Is that all the tomatoes? It's all the tomatoes, yeah. It just has like a, such a nice broth that the rice will soak up. You know, it makes me think that food is such a, a way of transporting us in time that Napoleon might have laid his eyes on something just like this. Isn't it so cool? I love reading the history of food and how things came about and the thought that somebody was on a battlefield and had just eaten chicken marengo is like a pretty cool thing to think about. Wait, did you give me one without olives? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's so nice of a chef to do. I, you, know, you know, I'm not going to force you to eat something. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to be like your mother. No, no. <laughs> I won't do that. All right. On um, a bed of brown rice, the parsley has added such beautiful color to the red that I was mentioning. And it should just kind of, you know. Oh, yes, that chicken just comes right, right off it. the bone. Yeah. Didn't even use the knife. No. Just use the side of the fork. <laughs> it's hot. Mm. The richness of the bay leaves comes through. It does. It's crazy. I went from smelling bay leaves a little earlier to tasting it. It's a lovely infusion, but it's not overpowering. Right, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of comfort in a bowl. It is comforting. It's interesting you say comforting because I feel like we need more of it these days. I totally agree. When we opened, we said we were comfort food, which I fully believe we are. But sometimes our menu may not read as comfort food until you get it. It's not all mac and cheese. Exactly. Um, and okay, this is funny. Our very first review of the restaurant was horrific. It was so bad. It was the worst review we've ever gotten. And this was a published critics review? It was review? a published critics review. I will not mention her name. But her whole critique was that it wasn't comfort food. But if you think mac and cheese is the only comfort food, I think comfort comes from familiar flavors, different memories that it invokes. So that's what this dish does for me. Well, bravo to you and, you know, a nod to your mom as well. Yes. yes. And Napoleon, maybe. <laughs> yes, Napoleon's cook. Thanks for being here and congratulations. Thank you. Caroline Glover, chef and owner of Annette Gastropub in Aurora. She is James Beard Mountain Chef for 2022. Again, recipes for Chicken Marengo and the Annette Martini are at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? During our lunch break, we'd be sitting outside like peeling mangoes and eating them fresh. And then I'd go inside to like dance these Afro-Brazilian, Afro-Caribbean style movements. I think that's when I most felt myself. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for Quien Are We everywhere you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Ten years ago, just after midnight, a man opened fire in an Aurora movie theater. Twelve people lost their lives. Seventy others were injured. Tonight, there will be a vigil at the memorial in their honor. There will also be a community gathering Saturday. 
My colleague Chandra Thomas-Whitfield spoke with Heather Dearman, who oversees the 720 Memorial Foundation. I think it's about the community coming back together mm-hmm. and like people remembering that Aurora is a beautiful community and we're so strong. And like I remember back then how everyone just had the love and the support for one another. And it's like, I know a lot of has happened even in Aurora in the past 10 years. And sometimes we get a bad rap, but like this is time for our community to come together and show everyone that we really just love one another. This year's theme is metamorphosis. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired that theme and what you're hoping for with that theme? Yes, every year we have a different theme for the chalk artist, but we chose metamorphosis because it's been 10 years and we feel like we have gone through a type of metamorphosis. If a tragedy happens to you, you are forever changed. And it's like, it's like when there's that caterpillar that's in its cocoon and it's feeling all trapped and sad and feeling like its life is over. But then over time, you know, it turns into a butterfly and you know, is it's a beautiful thing. So it is something tragic that started the change, but something beautiful comes out of it, which is being able to spread hope and healing to other people. All right, more of Chandra's interview with Heather Dearman, CEO of the 720 Memorial Foundation, tomorrow. So 10 years ago, when the attack occurred, Colorado's then-poet laureate channeled his grief into words. David Mason recorded those words for us and shared some thoughts about the poem he wrote at the time. At first, Mason said it was hard to decide what approach to take. I could try to write about the courage of those people who died in an effort to save their loved ones. I could try to write about the hurt of families who lost loved ones. But I think that I would be in danger if I wrote about those subjects of falling into verbal traps and emotional traps that would prevent me from being able to write a good poem. So I had to think a great deal about what I actually know. And what I know is how I feel about this event. I have felt great anger about it. I felt anger about the easy availability of assault weapons and the ineffectual debate about these things in the United States. I have also felt despair, an almost numbing despair, about what happened and what it implies about our culture. And I guess, in the end, uh, I felt I had to write about that feeling, about what I know. I'll talk about the poem after I read it. Um, The poem is called, After the Last Shot. So much goes by unseen. The parking lots, the passing cars, the brick apartment blocks, and faces masked in shade or turned away. How many faces did you see today? After the last shot, one face will appear, and then another. Here I am. I'm here. But others are not there. Not anywhere. Still you see them, see they begin to blur, a recurring nightmare jolting you awake. You try to drown it in the TV talk or take a walk where sad arroyos run in waterless confusion through the land. 
Now, one thing I, I can say is that I was talking about the problem of trying to write this poem with my wife, and she pointed out that the suspect was someone who hadn't been seen by people very much before this event. That is to say, neighbors who lived in the same apartment building with him said that they hadn't even seen his face. They didn't know who he was. And there was a strange moment when all of us saw his face for the first time. I also think about the faces of the victims and the faces of their friends and families, how those faces flashed on TV screens across the country and around the world, and how in the memories and minds and hearts of the people who knew those people, the faces will begin to fade in some ways or will become the faces and photographs, etc. So I focused on the faces. I focused on the buildings, the streets, the parking lots, the cars, the, that part of suburban Denver where the event took place. And then I said, after the last shot, after the shooting stops, one face will appear and then another. Well, the suspect's face appeared. The suspect had been masked when the event took place. He was wearing armor and a mask, but the mask was removed and he revealed himself to the police who arrested him. And then other faces appeared, the faces of victims. They appeared to us on television, they appear in memory, etc. But other faces are not there. There are things we can't see anymore. There are people we will not see anymore. And this is a recurring nightmare, jolting you awake. What happens? What do we do about it? You try to drown it in the TV talk or take a walk where sad arroyos run. This is a time of drought. And there's some sense that the land itself is scarred and confused by what has happened to us. It's a dark poem. It's a firm poem. And all I can say is that it's an effort to tell the truth about how I felt and to hope that other people will find some confirmation of this grim aspect of life in the modern world. David Mason from a decade ago when he was Colorado's Poet Laureate and an attack had occurred on an Aurora movie theater. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawful. You are with CPR News and KRCC.